so this will be the final uh, message of this three-week series on turning the tables. First week we looked at the believer. We looked at Mordecai and Haman and just how God took that situa- situation and completely flipped it. When you're patiently, obediently waiting on the Lord, um, God can do some miraculous things to take the most dire circumstances and turn them into something fruitful. Um, last week we looked at the persecution of the church and how when Satan was attacking it over and over, really that final straw, that stoning of Stephen, how God took that persecution and scattered basically everybody across the uttermost, just like the command he gave in Acts 1.8 um, unto Samaria, unto the uttermost, unto Judea, all over the very places that they went after that persecution. So again, God took something that Satan tried to thwart his plan and made it fruitful, took it and actually established his plan throughout all the land over there. So in this final message, by way of introduction of this series, we're going to look at the most blatant attack of all, and that's Satan's attack on the Lord Jesus Christ. Since Satan's rebellion, and you can see that in Isaiah 14, we're going to look at a little bit of that this morning, and then Ezekiel 28, there's been a constant constant effort from him to thwart the plan of God. We can see this through the subtle attack on the king's seed through the Old Testament. as just one example. And Jesus is the variable that determines if the Bible is truth or just another book. He's that linchpin. He's that key. He's that foundation. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, as we wrap this series up, I pray that you would uh, just open our eyes up to something new, that we'd connect um, dots in the Bible that we haven't seen before, that you would speak to us in a very personal way, that it wouldn't be me up here, that it would be your words um, as we read them uh, through your Bible. Lord, and uh, as your spirit works inside of me, um, I pray that it would also penetrate, penetrate the hearts of everybody in here. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the title of this message, Satan Attacks the Lord. All right, so we looked again at Satan attacking the believer. That was the first one, Satan attacking the church, and then Satan attacking the Lord. And as we look at these points this morning, you're going to see how they really all connect as one direct attack really against Jesus Christ, just manifested differently. So the first point is going to be the motivation behind Old Testament attacks. So we're going to look at, there's going to be three points, the motivation behind Old Testament attacks, the motivation behind church age attacks, and these are all with Satan, and then the third point, the collapse of Satan's attacks. So basically why he did what he did in the Old Testament, and I'm just touching the surface, there's a lot deeper you could go with this, and then why he does the things he does in the church age, what's his attack, what's he trying to um, destroy, and really what's the heart behind what he's doing, and then the third point, the collapse of all of it, why it all fails, um, and it really boils down to Jesus Christ. So flip over to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, the main I wills of Satan. The heart behind why he fell. It all boils down to his eye problem. I, 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 his pride. So the motivation behind his Old Testament attacks. Why was Satan doing the things that he was doing? Look in verse 13. This is God talking about Satan. It says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So Satan's heart from the very beginning 
has always been to be above God, has always been to take his throne and place it above God. There was one time that he was looking upon God and pride entered his heart. And he's like, man, I want, I want what he has. I'm sick of reflecting the good that he has. I'm sick of everybody looking basically through me at God. I want that worship that he's getting. And Satan realized, look, God is much higher than I am. God is much more powerful than I am. I can't ascend myself above there. So what, what does he try and do? He tries to make God a liar. He tries to bring God down. He tries to make this book a liar. He tries to attack him in all these different ways because Satan in and of himself cannot be more powerful. So in his pride, he's like, well, I'll just bring God down. And that's the heart behind a lot of these, a lot of these attacks. He's trying to make God a liar. He's trying to hinder his work on this earth. I mean, think about how, how much in the face, and I say this all the time, how much in the face this world is to Satan. You know, we look around and we see the sin and it can be very discouraging and look like Satan is victorious in a lot of different situations. But Satan, who stood in front of God and reflected all his glory, led worship, saw God face to face, rejected him. And he, God has a peculiar group of people on this earth that have never seen him, but choose to obey him out of faith. I mean, there's nothing more in the face of Satan that says, dude, you were dead wrong. I have a whole group of people that haven't even seen me and love me, that haven't even seen me and served me. Look at the persecution they're going through, and they're not willing to give in and seek their own deliverance. They're waiting for the resurrection that I'm bringing them because they love me. There's nothing more that brings God glory than when we stand in the face of sin, when we stand in the attacks of Satan, we're like, no, I know I haven't seen God, but he's proven himself over and over and over. I've seen him just not the same way that you have. And we're looking forward to that day that we see him physical, physically. <clears throat> so his goal in the Old Testament to try and stop or pervert the line that Jesus is going to come through. And we see that um, subtly. Look in uh, Genesis 3, verse 15, all the way back in the very beginning. First prophecy of Jesus Christ. The first prophecy of this battle between these seeds. So your first point, the king's seed. It's a king, capital K. Can somebody read verse 15 in Genesis chapter 3? Right, so who's God talking to here? Yes, Satan, the serpent. <clears throat> he says, I'm going to put enmity between your seeds. You know, so Satan is going to have a seed, and God also has a seed, and it's going to be Jesus Christ. And there's enmity. There's, there's a challenge that's going on there. All right, flip over to Genesis chapter 6. So just three chapters later. Now, there's debate on how long the time span was, whether it was a couple thousand years or whether it was... Uh, however long and how populated the earth was. But look here in just three chapters over in verse 9. It says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. What does that phrase, perfect in his generations, mean? And I know you guys have heard it in here before. Perfect in his generations. Was Noah a perfect man? Is it talking directly about Noah? Now, what does it mean, perfect in his generations? Satan hasn't corrupted any of his generations, so still hope for something. Corrupted how? Like all the other generations. I'm not no, you're on, you're on the right. Look at verse 4. I'll probably help you out. 
It says, There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. You see, what was going on in Genesis chapter 6 is these sons of God, these rebellious uh, beings that God had created way back before even Genesis 1-2, that were coming down to the earth and intermingling with the women, having sex with the women and giving birth to these giants. Men of renown. You hear the stories about Zeus and all those, you know, Greek gods. I truly believe that that's where this, they all go back to this moment in time. I don't think a lot of that is fake. I think the way it's portrayed is fake. But they were coming down and they were intermingling. They were uh, hooking up. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> they were mixing their DNA. They were coming together. That's what's so weird not to go down some conspiracy theorist, you know, I don't think the vaccine's any mark or anything like that because we're still here. But just the science behind some of the, the vaccines out there, the mRNA, the DNA mingling, the just anything to mess. And the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. Things that were going on in Noah's age are going to be going on now. So it's just eerie when you look about what's going on. But back then... These sons of God were messing with the human, human race, were messing with the seed. But in verse 9, it says that Noah was perfect in his generations. You know what that means? It means that these sons of God have not come in and perverted his line, have not come in and perverted his seed. You see, Satan, I truly believe in this moment, had these sons of God come down and tried to pervert the line that Christ was going to come through, had to pervert the line of the human race, try to get in and mess up the human race, Basically say, see, God, they messed up. But you know what? God always has a remnant. Even in this moment, he had eight people out of people think millions or billions. Even when you feel alone, there's always a remnant. God always has a remnant. But Noah was perfect in his generation. Satan was trying to attack the human race. He's always been trying to attack that line that Christ was going to come through. And then we're not going to turn there, but in Daniel 1, 2 through 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, it says that he was looking for people of the king's seed out of Judah. So what's interesting out of both of those? For one, it says that Jesus is going to come from a king's seed. Two, what nation is, what tribe is he, is he prophesied to come from? Judah. Just when you look at the Bible through that lens and you look at the Old Testament through Satan constantly trying to come against, and there's a bunch more you can look at in the Bible, it changes how you read those verses. And why every word of God is pure. Why he chooses to give insights in certain ways. Why he gives a name here or a tribe here. He's giving insight into the heart of the situation. And the heart of these situations is Satan. He's trying to pervert that line. He's trying to interfere with the plan that God has. So the king's seed. That's one of the motivations behind Satan's attacks in the Old Testament against Jesus Christ. And then the prophecies. We're not going to turn to these. But in Genesis uh, 17.9, it's the Abrahamic Covenant. That Christ is going to be brought through. And you think about the constant attacks on the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Constantly Satan's coming against that, coming against that line, coming against those people. And it's told that Christ is going to come through that line. In Genesis 49.10, it says that Jesus is going to come through Judah. That scepter is not going to leave. In Isaiah 7.14, it says that he's going to be a virgin birth. In Micah 5.2, it says that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And even think about the circumstances surrounding Bethlehem and Satan's attack there. When they got to Bethlehem, what did everybody tell them? Every, every inn they went up to, what did they say? No room here, no room here, no room here. I don't think that's coincidence. 
Satan is hard at work trying to disprove any of these prophecies. And they found a little manger, and they were able to still... You know, God's not taken by surprise. He knew exactly how this was going to take place. But flip over to Matthew chapter 2. Again, I'm laying some groundwork just so you can see that Satan's attack against Jesus Christ was not just at the cross. He's been attacking him since the very beginning and coming against any plan that God had to bring him into this world. And then he's attacking him continually after that, trying to prevent any believers, trying to prevent any future work or fruit from his resurrection. Can somebody read verse 16? Carson. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. All right. So where was Herod slewing all of the wise, all of the babies? Bethlehem. You guys can say it with power. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. See, Satan's moving through people, even with Herod, right up until the birth of Jesus Christ. He's like, slay them all. No heart. I mean, you look, again, you look around at the world today. No heart. No compassion. He doesn't care. Satan will do anything to try and stop God's plan, to try and stop Jesus Christ from doing his work. And it's crazy because Satan knows the power of God, but he's so prideful that he's like, he doesn't even care if he knows he's going to lose. He will keep trying and keep going and keep going very definition of pride and the definition of insanity. All right, so the attack, though. He's attacking Satan all the way up, in, or he's attacking Jesus all the way up until his birth, trying to stop that birth. And then this next one um, is really on its own because of the attention it gets by Satan, and that's the perfection of Jesus. You know, at Exodus 12.5, what was one of the key characteristics of the lamb that they had to get for the Passover? What did it have to be? It had to be spotless, without blemish which is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ when he comes into, this, comes into this world. The only sufficient sacrifice is a spotless, sinless lamb, which was Jesus. And then in Matthew 4, we're not going to go there, but in verses 1 through 11, what takes place there, if you guys are familiar with that? Right after Jesus gets baptized, right after he makes a public statement of his ministry and his ministry takes place, what comes at him right at the beginning of chapter 4? Huh? Satan. Satan. There you go. Satan comes at him, which, let that be a little side note. When, for those of you guys that are debating on getting baptized, that you guys have made commitments at camp, I pray that you do, but when you do, go into it very prayerfully because the second you get baptized, I'm telling you, it's a, it's a picture that Satan's going to be, he's not happy about that. He's going to be attacking and coming at you. But Jesus Christ, Satan right off the bat is challenging his, his, uh, his perfection through lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the same way he attacks us. Satan never stops. Think about how long he's been going at this. All the way back in Genesis 3, 6,000 years till now, he has not stopped. He is still coming against him, coming against him. Um, you think about it. If Satan can get Christ to have one blemish, spot, or wrinkle, the whole sacrifice is null and void. And so is his ability to redeem us. The whole plan is null and void if Satan has one spot, or if Jesus has one spot, one blemish. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5. Love this picture in a marriage.
verse 25 of chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The only way Christ can present you spotless, blemish-free, sinless, when you stand before God is by dying on that cross for your sins and raising again. And you accepting that and making that personal. You saying, yes, God, I want to receive that as my own. So when I stand before God, he doesn't see me. That's the thing. When, when Christ presents us to the Father, he doesn't see us for who we are. You know who he sees? He sees Jesus Christ who's covered us, who's taken our sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. We can't get there on our own. We can try. There's two ways to get to heaven. One's be perfect. Good luck. We've all sinned according to the Bible. Or two is to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the only way he can present us blemish-free, spot-free, as if he too was spot-free, blemish-free. It's the only way he's the sufficient sacrifice. So that was point number one, the motivation behind the Old Testament attacks. He's trying to stop that plan. He's trying to stop that plan from even starting through perversion of the line, through uh, nullifying some of the prophecies, through literally just killing Jesus before he's even born into this world. And all of his attacks, they fall short. And then point number two, the motivation behind church age attacks. And I really want you to see the connection of all three of these. It really takes the three messages in this series and connects them all and boils them all down to Jesus Christ. So our first point, the word of God. Flip back over to Genesis chapter 3. verse we're gonna look at one and then four and five it says now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the lord god had made and he said unto the woman yea hath god said ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden and then verse four after she says well and the serpent said unto the woman ye shall not surely die for god doth know that in the day ye eat thereof then your eyes shall be opened and ye shall be as gods knowing good and evil so the word of god really it's christ's words It's the things that God proclaims. Jesus Christ has proclaimed in his book. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. And I remember Tom sharing, Pastor Tom sharing this a while back about, you know, when you have things taken out of context, you have your words or what you said changed. How does that make you feel? If you guys say something, you share, you know, uh, something very intimate with somebody or something very deep, and they take it and they twist it just enough, It can change the entire message of what you were trying to convey. But man, we do that with Jesus Christ. Not we as in this church, but we as a human race do that with Jesus Christ. Every time we take his love letter to us, his Bible, we slap another version on it. That's why I'm so passionate about these things. If there's 50 or 1,000 versions out there, there's one of them that is actually what God said. Jesus promised in his book that he would preserve his words. God promised through all of time that he would preserve his words, that we'd be able to find them. If we believe God, they're out there. And I made it my mission when I was in high school and even going into college to fully believe why we believe this book. Satan is always trying to change his words. He did it back then just verbally, right to Eve, right to her face. And he does it nowadays through different Bible translations. 
or just pastors up there that don't have a clue about what they're talking about and taking what the word of God says and resting it, changing what it says, wrongly dividing what it says. Satan's always been in the business of attacking God's words. Why? Because in John chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say that Christ is? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's attacking Christ directly with that. In verse 14, we see that Christ was made, that Word was made flesh, and it was Jesus Christ. He's attacking his conversations, he's attacking his credibility. All right, so the Word of God, that's Christ's words. And then the believers, that's Christ's followers. Flip over to John chapter 11. You might read John 11 and be like, well, how does this really fit? It goes back to sort of like with Haman and Mordecai. You know, Satan attacked Mordecai where he knew it hurt, which was his people, the nation of Israel. It says that Mordecai wept mourned. Everybody heard him crying for his people. Jesus Christ defined what that heart is to care for people. You guys know what the shortest verse in the Bible is? Jesus wept. wept. Now do you know the context of Jesus wept? And he's like, I did my part. You guys are up. Well, we're going to see it. Chapter 11, verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping... And the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled and said, Where have ye laid him? Who's the him? Lazarus. They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. I, I, I used to read that and be like, God, that just doesn't make sense. Like He's going to be raised. And even still, you're Jesus. Like, how does, why does that touch you? I don't know. Any of you guys with me? Like, you read that and you're like, I get it. You know, I'm reading it, but it just doesn't break my heart the same way that it does Jesus, obviously. But man up. Yeah. I ain't telling God that. <laughs> but no, seriously, though, you read it and you're like, but Jesus, you know the end of the story. Sometimes, we, man, we can depersonalize Jesus so much. It's like, well, he knows the end of the story. He knows what's coming. Yeah, but he still has emotions. He still has a heart. And Jesus wept. He cares about his people. He cares about all of you. And that helps me. It helps me uh, apply uh, uh, emotions to him, apply personality. So when I'm in the thick of it and I'm struggling, I know that Jesus Christ, man, his heart's breaking. I know that he's right there with me feeling the same pains that I am. I mean, something like this that seems so insignificant, and it's not because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. Everybody knows it, but the context of it is that his heart broke for his friend. His heart broke for his follower. His heart breaks for you guys, especially when Satan attacks you and he gets victory over your life. His heart breaks. He cares about you. He wants to see you be victorious, and Satan knows that, which is why he attacks, which is why he tries to break God's heart. That's Again, Satan, he's, he's diabolical. I mentioned this last week. The sickest thing you can think of or you see in a courtroom or you hear about out there, Satan's already won up that person. Satan's the inventor inventor of all those uh, twisted ideas, of all the perversions in the world. Now flip over to Acts chapter 9. I just wanted you guys to see that, though. When Satan's attacking believers, yes, he's attacking you directly, but he's also attacking the heart of Jesus Christ. That's why there's great joy when a sinner gets saved. 
Just like there's great sadness when a sinner falls or when a believer falls. Chapter 9, you guys know the context of chapter 9. Saul on his way to Damascus, Jesus Christ intersects him. And look what he tells Saul. Verse 4, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? In verse 5, and he said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Second time, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, the pricks inside your heart, the conviction, the guilt. But what's interesting about Paul is, was he persecuting Jesus directly? Did he put Jesus Christ up on the cross? I was waiting for Carson to go, well, there's sin, dude. So technically, if you look at the... No, I'm just, <laughs> just giving me a hard time. No, he didn't put Jesus physically up on the cross. He didn't persecute directly against Jesus. Well, who's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about his people, the church. He was attacking his believers. He was attacking Christ's followers. And really, that's an attack against Jesus Christ. And even Ephesians 4.30, we're not going to turn there. Anybody know that by heart? And grieve. We got, oh, we're going to have to turn there if you guys can't say it. All right, Ephesians 4.30. You guys will have it now. Oh, that's it. All right, AJ, you can read it. That's fine. Go ahead. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Again, a revealing of Christ's heart. And we read that with the context of, you know, our life, our personality, or the decisions that we make. What I want you to see is that, you know, the Holy Spirit grieves, and he grieves when Satan's attacking and you allow him to have victory in your life. I find myself constantly telling, I think I shared this even last week, constantly telling more my daughter than my son, don't let Satan have victory in your life. Don't let Satan have victory in your life. You have a situation here. Satan wants you to do this. Jesus wants you to do this. You're going you're gonna to give one of them victory in your life. Man, when you give Satan victory in your life, it grieves God. It makes him upset. He weeps over that. He wants what's best for you. Even in the moment when it doesn't seem like it's the best thing, God knows far greater. I'm like, think about the crucifixion. Do you think that looked great to people? It made disciples mad. Peter was like, you ain't doing that. But look at the fruit, man. Because they waited. Look at what was waiting on the other side. We don't always see the resurrection waiting on the other side until we're there. It's hard to get her mind to understand that. But don't let Satan have victory in your life. And it can come very, very subtly. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit inside of you. Christ has called you to have a successful life. But understand, when you let Satan have victory in your life, it's not God standing up there saying, man, I wish they'd just do what I told them to do. Why don't they stink and listen? Sort of how sometimes I feel as a father. You know what it does? It breaks his heart. He's like, man, but I love them. The decisions they're making, it's going to take them there. I don't want them down there. I have a better place for them. All right, they're going to have to learn. And it comes through chastisement, comes through pain, comes through heartache that we're not meant to experience. But let that be a reminder not to go there again. All right, and then lastly, the last motivation, it's the church. It's Christ's body. Romans 12, 5 says, So we being many are one body in Christ. And everyone members one of another. And we talked about that last week, um, you know, as Christ, um, his body being the church. And we're all members. We're all important. 
But Satan attacks that. And think about it from a more literal standpoint. So when he attacks the church, what's he literally attacking? Christ's body. Who Christ is. His body on this earth. You know, sometimes I think that Christ's pain physically was up on that cross and then that was it. You guys with me on that? Sometimes I think that he, he paid the, the price on the cross and now it's basically it's gravy until he raptures us out, comes down, takes the earth by force, and bam, we're good. You realize Satan is attacking Christ's body every single day. Every day he's coming at his rib cage. He's coming at his face. He's coming at his side. He's coming at his arm. He's beating his body down. Now, how's his body responding down here? How strong are we allowing his body to be? You know, think about what's his body going to look like when he comes back at the rapture. It's basically because we failed him. We've allowed those attacks to wear us down, wear us down, and we're like, throw in the towel. I'm done. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of the body that goes down swinging. That as Satan's coming, I'm coming right back. Falling seven times, getting up an eighth. Not giving up. Again, don't let Satan have victory in your life personally as a follower, and don't let him have victory in our church because it's a complete reflection on Christ's body. Christ redeemed you from the things that we find ourselves tempted to go back to. And he wants, he wants the best for you. He's not going to force you into those things. But think about that. What's Christ's body, his church, going to look like at the last trump? You play a part in that. You are a member of that body. Don't take your position. Don't take your responsibility for granted. All right, and then point number three, which is where I want to spend a decent amount of time, the collapse of Satan's attack. So that was basically all the context leading up to this point. How Satan's been working through the Old Testament, through all these subtle attacks, through prophecy, through the seed, through even trying to kill Jesus Christ before he was even born. And then in the New Testament, how he's continually attacking the church. He's attacking his body, he's attacking us, his members, and he's attacking his words. Be aware of those things so that you can defend against them. But then look at... Point number three, the collapse of Satan's attack. So the first point, the crucifixion of Jesus and apparent defeat. Flip over to John chapter 19. Sometimes I got to put myself in the shoes of the apostles or the disciples here. And to really, you know, it's, again, it's easy to, to look at Job and be like, man, why didn't you just endure it a little bit more knowing the end of the story we can do the same thing with the crucifixion it's a lot easier to look at the disciples and say man why couldn't you guys just patiently wait he's going to die on the cross he'll be risen again i mean put yourself in their shoes they had nothing they don't have the completed bible we have the bible that we can look at and we know the end of the story we go into every story that we read in the bible a little biased because we know what's coming go into this story without you know fight it without being biased and put yourself in the position of the disciples and you're watching your savior who you spent three and a half years i mean they've just poured their heart out and he's poured their heart out right back into them and all of a sudden he's like by the way yeah i need i need to die that's right my heart i can understand with peter when he gets so fired up and he's like you ain't doing that and you remember what christ tells peter get thee behind me satan He's like, no. Satan was in that attack trying to prevent that. You know why? Because Satan knew what was coming. Satan knew what was going to come through that crucifixion, but this world didn't. And we'll look at that a little bit later. But the crucifixion of Jesus and his apparent 
defeat. John chapter 19, look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. All the prophecies have been fulfilled. He's like, all right. Verse 29. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. You imagine the scene, everybody watching this, and they're like, he's dead. Like, he's gone. This man of such strong controversy, this man that caused everybody to go in an uproar that was beaten to death. And you know that there were people that weren't even his disciples that were like, what did he do? He didn't deserve this. And all their faith is put to the test. And everybody, this lost world, the princes of this world, and like I said, we're going to look at this first, think that they won. They think that it's over. They're like, we're done. We can go live our life now. He's out of our hair. Satan thinking he's won. Thinking it's all over. Look at verse chapter 20, verses 10 through 16. Again, another revealing of Christ's heart. You can get a feeling of the disciples too and the people of how broken they were about this. Then the disciples, verse 10, went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher. And seeth two angels in white, sitting the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had said, and when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself, she turned herself and said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren, and say unto them, I ascend into, unto my father and your father, and to my God and your God. And I want you to see, you know, Mary's broken. The disciples are broken. They're all broken because their Savior just died. The feeling of defeat was all over the people. The people that followed Jesus and the people that crucified Jesus. It almost feels like, you know, when you're watching a movie, and it's like there's no way they're coming back from this. There's not enough people. There's way too many attacks. I, how many of you guys in here are like Lord of the Rings? Yeah, I'm like starting to date myself. That used to be like a hot new movie. There's a battle in it at the end of the third one where they're all surrounded and, you know, they're all coming in. I'm like, all right, the ratio is like 10,000 to one. There's, and I, and I know it's a movie, it's Hollywood, they made money off it. So something good's going to happen here. But I'm like, that's like Jesus's circumstance. That's like his odds, but on such a larger scale, there's no way he's getting out of this. It's almost like, all right, the book's over, toss in the towel, let's go home. The apparent defeat. Your second point, the actual defeat of the cross, sin and death. 1 Corinthians 15, we're not going to turn there, but the highlights. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's what was going on up on that cross. And again, we can see that now because we know the end of the story. But put yourselves in the position of the disciples. Try and understand their perspective. Boy, what a faith rocker. 
But then what a booster when you see him risen from the dead and he's like, all right, look, everything that I said was true, now go. That's why their work was sustainable. That's why they were able to be burned alive, hung upside down on a cross, cast into fire, all, all these things that they beheaded, tortured, and they would not renounce the name of God. Why? Because they saw Jesus Christ die and they saw him rise again and they're like, that's what I want. That's my God. That's the God you guys serve. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 2. We're going we're gonna to close here. Just one more verse after that. So the deception that Satan cast on this world. I don't know if you guys have seen this verse in this light before, but man, it changed my view of Satan, my view of the leaders of the world back then, and really just the truth of this book. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. Actually, verse, start verse 6. Albeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the, of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Think about that for a minute. If the princes of this world believed what crucifying Jesus actually would do, they wouldn't have done it. You think about the deception that Satan has cast across this world, that he has people blindly doing his bidding. That if they would have known what crucifying Jesus would actually do, if they'd have known the victory that was waiting, they'd have been like, wait, no, 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 don't do that. They wouldn't have put him up on the cross. They had no idea what they were doing. And it makes you think back, what does Jesus Christ say to the people that are crucifying him? Forgive them, they know not what they do. But the princes of this world, the evil powers in this world, they wouldn't have crucified them had they known what, what was actually going to happen. They honestly thought that they were killing him, that they were just putting him to bed, that it was done, and they were going to move on. I'm telling you, the, Satan, the deception that Satan cast on this world is strong. And it puts in perspective how strong the delusion that the Antichrist is going to have when he comes into this world. Don't be deceived by Satan now. How many things when we stand before God on the, at the judgment seat of Christ are we going to look back on and say, man, if I'd have known that doing this would lead to that, I wouldn't have done it. Make, it, make a point now to not do it. God gives us the warning signs. He gives us a way of escape. Don't let Satan have victory in your life. Don't let his deception win you over. All right, so in closing, the biggest turn of events in history, Satan thought that killing Jesus would secure his victory, but that is the act that drove the nail in the coffin of his defeat. Flip over to 1 John chapter 3 and we'll end. What was the last deception Satan cast? On this world. This is why Jesus Christ came. This is why he was manifested or revealed. He that committed sin is of the devil. Again, it goes right back to what we were saying. Don't let Satan have victory in your life. 
For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus Christ came to this world to destroy the works of the devil. And the devil, who'd have thought that his very act, thinking that he's destroying Jesus, would be the thing that God used to win this world, that God would use to win our souls. Again, the turning the tables, taking something that Satan is using in your life and twisting it right back on him. So remember what I shared with you guys last Sunday, what I was going to be doing at my work? Took my signature and I put my name. I, you weren't here last week. You'll appreciate this. So people at work now are putting their pronouns next to their name. He, him, apparently a name like Catherine is, could be a guy. So they put her, she. So I said, you know what, I've had enough. So I'm going to take this garbage that Satan is using to try and just pervert the biology of the human race, and I'm going to turn it against him. So under my name, I put bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's in my signature now. And what's funny is I was off Friday, and I'm off Monday and Tuesday for when Brandy gets back, and I have auto reply on. So everybody that's sending me an email is getting my fat signature going back. Right on. I know. <laughs> but you know what it is, and it's... It, you know, it's just something that I got convicted about. It's taking something that Satan uses in your life, whatever it is, and turning it right back around on him. You guys can have conversations now that we could not have had 10, 15, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Capitalize on those situations. I when that, when that article first came out at work sharing about how everybody's putting their pronouns in their email, I was discouraged. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm like, you know what, God, you can get glory in this. What can God get glory in your life that you can take the tables and turn them directly back on Satan? You did it when you got saved. You took the tables and you turned them right around on Satan and said, you saw him and hated him. I don't even see him and I love him and I have faith. What's something practically that you guys can do right now? So think about that. God's been doing it throughout all the history and you can do it with the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. So don't let Satan have victory. Take those things and turn them right around on him. All right, let's pray. God, as I was studying this series out and just looking at a lot of these um, traits about you, Lord, I just thank you for um, who you are, your emotions, your love. God, that you're not just some robotic being. You care about us. You weep when we weep. You hurt when we hurt. Father, I pray for everybody in here that you would be very real, very near and present help in time of need. And Lord, that this series, as we go on, um, in the weeks to come, and even with school coming up, Lord, that it would spur um, even just one person in here to do something small. God, to turn the tables on wherever Satan's getting victory in their life, that they would turn those tables and use it to get victory for you, Father. So, God, I pray for everyone in here that wherever Satan seems to be winning, God, that they wouldn't throw in the towel, that they would fight back so that you can have victory, trusting the fruit that's waiting on the other side. Just like the crucifixion, God, none of the disciples could see the fruit. God, and it hurt them. Lord, they patiently waited, and man, what a work they were able to do because of that. Father, allow us to patiently wait on you. So when that experience comes, man, it's going to give us a strong hope so that we can do more and more for you, Lord. I pray for your hand over this church, over this ministry. Bring the Mexico team home safely tomorrow, Lord. Be with Pastor Tom, um, as it'll be good to hear from him after being uh, gone on vacation. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.